I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Mini Cooper. For most of us, driving is one of those unavoidable byproducts of adulthood, something we stop associating with pleasure after too many hours spent hunting for viable parking spots. Mini has had 60 years to tweak their performance-centric models to make even the trials and tribulations of urban commuting enjoyable. With their Mini Countryman model, they combined the same fun, instantly recognizable design that made Mini famous in the first place with a significantly roomier body. It seats five passengers without even trying and leaves plenty of cargo space for whatever you're packing. To learn more about Mini and their diverse range of models, please visit miniusa.com. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with someone who has shown us a new way of thinking about some aspect of life. I'll be interviewing some guests who have completely changed our culture, like Oprah herself. You'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer, Elise Lunin. I know I'm biased, but I think she's the best interviewer around. Today's guest is Dr. Greg McEwen. He's the author of a book called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Doing Less. Some people confuse Greg as an advocate for saying no, but at its core, his essentialism philosophy is about identifying what you really want to say yes to and feeling empowered enough to pursue just those things. If somebody gets the idea that what essentialism is is simply saying no to people, everyone all the time without really thinking about it, then I think they will just damage relationships. As I think people fear they will when they think about the word no. That's why people don't do it. But if they frame it from the point of view of what is most essential, you can start with that with almost anyone. Today, our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, talks with Greg about why we can't do everything and why that's not a bad thing. If we can't do everything, which of course we can't, if we can't do everything, which things are most important? That's the right conversation to have. At the end of today's conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you have a question on your mind, just drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Before we get to Greg, let's talk about one of our partners. Here at Goop, it's hard not to drink the clean eating Kool-Aid. And for me, one of the best parts of living in L.A. is that we have farmer's markets year-round, which means fresh produce right in our neighborhood on a regular basis. Wandering the stalls and handpicking local ingredients is a favorite Sunday morning activity. My kids like it too. But all the cage-free eggs and California-grown tomatoes would feel a little wasted if we had toxic cookware at home. So green pans clean, ceramic, nonstick pans are pretty much always on our stove. They're great for everything from cheese omelets to stir-fry dinners, even searing meat or doing a homemade braise. Unlike the traditional nonstick options, green pan skips the harmful fluorinated chemicals and plastics. So if I accidentally overdo the heat, I don't have to worry about toxic fumes filling the kitchen, which is always nice. But probably what my husband and I most like about green pan is the easy cleanup. It's a real nonstick pan, so there's no soaking and no scrubbing, which makes the end of the night a lot more fun. Enjoy 40% off your first green pan by using coupon code GOOP at greenpan.us. Now let's get to Elise and Greg McEwen. Thank you for being here. So essentialism, 
it's like kind of a funny book. It's a little bit like Ayn Rand to me or Ayn Rand um, in the Fountainhead where I read it and I'm like, oh my God, yes. And then after I'm like, screw you. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a beautiful idea. And we're going to talk about all the components of essentialism, but it's so hard. How do you do this? Yeah, the, the book should a come. Woman and a mother. It should come with a warning. Yes, this will be the hardest thing you ever do. Yes, like throughout, I'm like, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to say no, and I'm like, do I say no to my five year old? Anyway, before we get into it, let's start with the basic value proposition of essentialism. This is from your book. Only once you give yourself permission to stop trying to do it all, to stop saying yes to everyone. Can you make your highest contribution towards the things that really matter? Is that still how you define it? Yes, that's exactly what it is. But I'll tell you what I feel clearer about than even when I wrote the book is that the opposite of this is so weird. The world in which we live is what's weird. So I think you're right that essentialism is challenging for sure. It's a disciplined pursuit. You have to keep going with it. But while that is countercultural and it first feels weird, after a while... It's non-essentialism, the idea that you can do it all mm-hmm. and that you should do it all for everyone all the time. Oh, yeah, that's a weird idea. Mm-hmm. The idea that that's even possible starts to seem the strange thing. And essentialism is a way out of what I think is a sort of, I don't know, a sort of cultural madness. How did we get here? Well... It's complicated. It's quite a story. But one of the, one of the things that I found interesting in the research was just the, the history of the word priority. Yeah. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s, singular. It's the first thing. It's the prior thing. It is, by definition, singular. And according to Peter Drucker, it stayed singular for 500 years, which is something, really, because that means that, that nobody in the English-speaking language pluralized the term until the Industrial Revolution. So no one is, I mean, what does, what does it mean to have many priorities mm-hmm. where everything has to be done? I mean, can you have very, very many, very first, before all other things, things? <laughs> this is the madness, you see. So that's part of what happened. We moved from agrarian into this industrial age, and with it, we threw out some of the important ideas about how people and humans actually work and thrive. That's part of the reason. Mm-hmm. But then there's more to it. I mean, you could, that sort of generation one, generation two of non-essentialism was in the post-Second World War era. Everyone comes back from this most discombobulating experience that the, that, that, that humanity can almost imagine. How long did we take to mourn, to adjust, to figure out what we wanted to do next? We just jumped right back in. And, and a very deliberate Panem strategy was employed by the, by the government, in fact, uh, in which... It was, uh, you know, cir- uh, panem means uh, circus and bread. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's keep people distracted with, with television, with uh, shopping and so on. And this was a way to drive the economy, but it wasn't necessarily the way to drive a great uh, thriving uh, society. Mm-hmm. And so th- th- that's generation two. There's just three generations. The third generation is what we've all experienced and witnessed in the last 10 years as we've gone from being connected technologically to being hyperconnected. Mm-hmm. And in that pace, we've taken this same sort of false idea of non-essentialism, that you can have it all, that you should do it all, that that is what success will, uh, you know, is made of. Uh, and, and what we actually find is that that's a bit of a con. Mm-hmm. It's a great con. It does not produce what it says on the packaging. Yeah, it's true. This is, this is where, how we got here. It's a package for misery. 
It's a package for misery. Yeah. It's not, it's not sold to people like that. Right. It's sold to people like you can just have it all. If you have it all, if you do it all, you can have it all. Right. And I think too, within that, there's, it's also sold as like, you need to have it all, right? You need to do it all. You need to have it all. There's no rigor in saying no. And in my world, you know, like I don't, I don't do it very well. I don't have amazing boundaries. You talk about boundaries a lot in your book. And I think for women, it feels so far to get to the world that you write about. It's amazing. And I want to get there, but it's like how, what, when you talk about priorities, I have a lot of priorities at job, at my job. I have my two little boys. Yeah. I have my husband. There's a lot of important things in yeah. your life. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm first of all, very sympathetic to this. I mean, one of the reasons I took the time to research and then write essentialism was because of an experience I had where I was, I got an email from uh, my colleague at the time said Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she was expecting, otherwise that's an even stranger email to get. <laughs> but there we are in the hospital, <laughs> middle of the night, Thursday night, our daughter's born, Friday morning comes, everyone's okay. I mean, everyone is healthy, but only as healthy as one can be after you've gone through the valley of the shadow of death right. the night before. And yet I'm still feeling obliged to go to this meeting. And, and to my shame, I do go to the meeting and... Afterwards, I remember they said, uh, the, the client will respect you for the choice you just made, you know. And the look on their faces didn't evince that sort of confidence. But even if they did respect me for it, you know, I know, I made a fool's bargain. Mm -hmm. And from that, learned the simplest of lessons, which is this. If you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And so that's what I learned from it. But, but people listening to this can ask questions themselves for where they are on this continuum. You know, are they finding themselves like I was, being stretched too thin mm -hmm. at work or at home? Uh, are they finding themselves like I was, f feeling busy but not necessarily productive on what matters most? Uh, are they finding that their life is being hijacked by other people's agenda mm -hmm. for them? And if the answer is yes, that means we're in the territory of the non-essentialist. And so if that's working for you, keep doing it. But on the basis it might not be, Let's at least explore an alternative. Mm -hmm. uh, go on a different journey, the way of the essentialist. All right. So what is the way of the essentialist? The, the way of the essentialist uh, begins with a mindset. And the mindset is, uh, is, is to recognize that almost everything is non-essential, that only a few things are really vitally important, and to, to do what we can to find those things. Uh, there's really three steps in becoming an essentialist once you adopt that mindset one is to create space to figure out what is essential amidst all of these different competing good things number two is to learn how to eliminate the non-essential as gracefully and as well as possible and then the third thing is to create a system that makes it as easy as possible pursue the things you've identified as being really important. I love that. I remember going to see this amazing astrologer, Jennifer Freed, and we were talking about my life path and what's available to me. And she said something similar to what you said, which is, she said, if you don't figure out what you want to do, other people will do that for you. That's, it's not neutral. Yeah. 
And it's true. It's like you create the void. You create the chaos and you create the void and suddenly you lose control. So how do you, how do you coach people just going, let's go through them step by step. But step one, how do you figure out what that clarity of purpose is? Okay. You, are you up for doing it right now yourself? Sure. Okay. So here in the room we're in, there's a table. This table is now our continuum. Okay. On this side of the room, on this side of the table rather, this is zero to 10% important. That's the, the far end of the table. Mm-hmm. On this side, the other side of the table is the most essential thing. So this is an importance continuum. So the first question was, what is essential? Mm-hmm. So what I want you to identify right now is something that would be 90 to 100% important to you, something very important that you are either not investing in or are under-investing in. And how do you determine, do you just do that based on what feels right? Well, I think you can start there. Right. I wouldn't overthink it too much. I know. I can just think about the, the, the things that are my family. Okay. My marriage. Okay. So, talk, so start there. Okay. So is there something, let's just get a little more specific about it. What is it that you feel... You know, it's, I say it's my value. I know it's important. I'm, I am giving something to it, but maybe not giving as much as I wish I was. What, give me a specific part of that. See, this is where I am very conflicted. So I would say my kids, right? Like I'm not at home. I work and I work hard and sometimes I work at night a little bit and sometimes I work a little bit on the weekends. Sure. I'm, I'm surprised you're <laughs> nodding and not shaking your head. No, um, no, no. I'm very sympathetic to this. And it's hard. Like every weekend, I'm sure every working parent can relate. I'm like, sure. I'm... I'm a working parent. Yeah. I want to sleep, right? Right. So I certainly let my kids have too much screen time and... Okay. So let's talk about that. I wish I were a more engaged mother on the weekends. More engaged mother on the weekends. Got it. So let's let's take that as as the area. Now let's get a little more specific. What would success look like for you? Let's... What would take it from being something you say, I'm still under-investing this, to something you say, you know, I feel like that was meaningful improvement. Something that I've, I've got further now than I was before, and I, I maybe move on to another essential thing that I'm under-investing in. Two playdates a weekend. Two playdates a weekend. And two playdates, what would that look like to you? Is it, is it you, you, taking them to an activity? You go to the museum, you go to something, one on each day approximately. That's yes. what, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Is it, is it a couple of hours is sufficient for what you're... Yeah, three you know, hours. Two or three hours, three yeah. hours. You're looking now for six hours mm-hmm. of time that would allow you to do that. Now, before we move on to step two, I want to dig a little more. Why does it matter to you? Because I feel so guilty. Mm. But, yeah. It gets, it gets you off the hook if you do this. Yeah, there's definitely some of that. Like, I don't think that they're harmed in any way by the fact that, like, we're really slow to motivate on the weekend. And I don't want to overschedule them. But I just, I want to make sure they like get out of the house. They're outside. They're in nature. Why does that matter to you? I want them to be healthy. I want them to be engaged and attended to. Why does that matter? <laughs> All right, I'm going to go further. Um, so that they grow up to be healthy, engaged, well-adjusted kids. And why does that matter? So that they're happy. Yeah. Now we got through some whys. <laughs> so we've gone... We've identified something that you feel like you'd like to invest a little more in, something Mm -hmm. that's very important to you and why. You feel, if I do this, 
there's a pattern. If I could do this consistently, this would help to make the kind of connections, the kind of health for them, the kind of experience that would help them to be happy, thriving, contributing mm-hmm. adults in their life. Yes. Right. So good. We've done basically step one. Okay, great. So that wasn't too bad. Now we're going to go to step two. Okay. Step two is to eliminate a non-essential. So now I need you to identify for me something that is zero to 10% important. This is something that is unimportant, but you're still investing time there. What, what's anything that comes to mind for you on that? Going to the grocery store. Okay. <laughs> we, we, we have going to the grocery store. How long does that take? Do you do that on the weekend? Do you do that through the week? When- I do it all the time. <laughs> I go to the Costco every weekend, You're like the which gro- I turn into a play date. I secretly right. love Costco. If you add up the amount of time you go shopping, the store shopping in a week, how much time does this probably equal for you? Six hours. Well, okay, maybe magic. <laughs> no, that was magic. You are looking for six hours. <laughs> you spend six hours doing something you think is non-essential. Right. So we've identified number two. I take two. them to the store with me half the time. I understand that. <laughs> So let me just confirm before we go forward. Do you, would you feel good about the trade-off? No, don't worry about whether you can make the trade-off or how you would make the trade-off. But if you traded off these two play dates, six hours, in engaged time with your children, over this time going to the store, Costco and so on, would you feel good about that trade-off? Would you like yeah. to make that trade-off? Yeah. So now we have to move to the third step. Yeah. which is to build a system. Right now, basically other people have built this system for you. Mm-hmm. You've gone along with it. So what we have to do is we have to now build a new system. We have to ourselves come up with a system that will help to stack the decks in your favor. Mm-hmm. You want this. You want this, these play dates, this quality experience, this engagement, but you're getting something else. Mm-hmm. And that's because the system is supporting that. What would the new system look like? Let, let me ask you this way. Let's say we try an experiment for this week. No shopping. Yes, you're going to do these dates. And we're going to come up with a reward system for you. So if you do this, if at the end of this week you have made this trade-off, I want to know what's something external, a carrot... Mm-hmm. that you would enjoy doing? What's something that you can reward yourself with? A massage. A massage. Yeah. Scheduled Sunday night. Yeah. Soothe whoever, <laughs> right? Yeah. Scheduled in your home Sunday night if you've done this. Okay, that's a positive. I like it. Good. Now, second step. We need to, within this execution practice, something that happens a takeaway a, a stick something that if you do not do this something that you won't not just you won't get the massage but something that you have to give up a takeaway what's something you don't want to something you don't want to lose but you would lose i wouldn't be able to go to tracy anderson to do my exercise all right we'll make them self-care on either side of the spectrum okay so which of them is stronger, by the way, motivation-wise for you those, out of those two? 
not exercising is the stronger motivation. Yeah, and that's what the research shows is that a takeaway is is approximately six times more powerful than a positive, which I wish that wasn't true, but that seems to be the case. Okay, a third piece of this. Uh, I'm looking for a graphical representation of progress. So every time you do this, it gets put somewhere. Saturday you do it. Where do you get to celebrate that? We want the equivalent of a star chart or a calendar system or you know a thermometer system like you'd have in elementary school. What, what, what's, where, what's the nat- most natural graphical representation you can think of that would work for you? Hmm. Where I have to physically mark this. Exactly. A star chart. A star chart, because who doesn't want a star chart? We're all big kids. So you have a star chart. Now, this needs to be somewhere, you know, you know, somewhere you can see it, somewhere the children can see it, and so on. That leads us to now the next thing, which is an accountability partner. Someone who's going to, in a fun and gentle but supportive way, hold you accountable. Who's that? My husband. Yeah. Well, how, how would you explain this to him? If, if this interview was not really an interview, if this was an intervention yeah. set up by your husband. But what about, he's the same. That's our problem. Like we, he, he's we got are the same like problem. a quicksand. Of, he wants to like, you'll laugh because he works at Vitsu, which is part of your book, but he just wants to like build Lego sets with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> I, believe, I do believe In that fact, fully. In fact, he spent all weekend organizing all of their Legos. I, I like him even more. I know. We'll have to explain why we think that's funny. But So, well, first of all, let's just talk about Vitsu and why, why this, is, this is in this. So, so Vitsu is a company that's been very interesting to me because they, have, they are a company that is built around a single design philosophy, a phrase uh, coined by Dieter Rams, uh, the designer at, um, at Braun for 35 years uh, is the phrase "less but better." Mm-hmm. So they've built this whole. They they have the the rights to all of Dieterem's products, but because they're so deeply committed to less but better, despite having many products to choose from, for as far as I remember, something in the range of 30 years, they only sold a single product mm-hmm. and it was a shelving system mm-hmm. we can hardly imagine that a company would exist for that long and especially in the furniture industry in which it's almost a fashion industry every season is many many new designs and they have a single design for all of these years but what a shelving system it is it's amazing it's an amazing system it is designed to work it is designed not to take to, to draw attention to itself. I mean, it's, I lived, as you know, I live in a Vitsu showroom. So, you live in a Vitsu showroom. And we, they make couches now. They brought the couch this back. This was number two. Yeah. And that little side table that's really affordable. But it's, we're very different. So he's like the confining, I'm the maximalist, he's the minimalist. And he spends his days planning these architectural, these systems for people and installing them and like, corralling their chaos so it's kind of he does that for me but the Dieter Rams is like a major figure in his life obviously because he's a design architecture student yes and and what I think is fascinating to me about Vitsu why I was drawn to that company why I researched it and spoke to the folks there is because is because they went beyond the principle of less but better as it applies to a product Lots of companies have done that. Well, at least a few. 
Uh, Apple has done that. They went beyond it. They said, what if we inculcated that into the the leadership of our organization, into the culture of our organization? What if that's just the way we were, the way we think about our whole organization? What about the way we hire? Get the right natural fit. Mm -hmm. Spend a lot of energy to make sure you have just the right essential person rather than throwing somebody in there, finding later they really weren't a great fit and so on. So they have enormously uh, clean and critical and... uh, and, um, what's the word I'm looking for, extreme criteria for who they're looking for. And one of that, those items is they found that there's a high correlation between someone who <laughs> plays with Legos a lot as a child <laughs> and the kind of person who will enjoy working in the culture at Fitsu. Yeah. That's right, isn't it? it no, that's totally right. And it's in, there was an interesting part in the book where you talked about how someone was doing an install like an, on a practice day because they do this where people come in and they – it's an intense onboarding and the guy did great. And then at the end he threw his tools in the bag and they were like, not Vitsoid. Like he's just not Vitsu. And it's like Rob and I have this joke. Like I destroy everything, phones, sunglasses. I lose nothing. He takes care. Everything is pristine and then he loses it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, he's like, I'll keep sunglasses for like five years that I can barely see out of because I just throw them in my bag. And So you wouldn't make it at Vitsu? I would not make it at Vitsu. But that's the joy of it. Yeah. You don't want a company culture, for example, to be something that anyone would want to work for. You want to be selective. You right. want people who say, self-connect. This is the kind of place I would like to be. Right. Or this is the place wouldn't work for me. Now, I want to connect the dots, though. Okay. So you've said, but what about my husband? Right. You know, he won't necessarily see the situation as I. Well, of course, that's true. But this is part of the system. The conversation you would need to have with him is part of the system. You have to build this system into place. So I want you to tell me, if we, if we pulled him in, if this was an intervention, he's, he's around the corner. <laughs> he's going to come in right now. You're just a tiny bit nervous. This is, this is true. He comes in, and you have to explain to him what we just have done so far. Yeah. How how would you do that? I would say in order for me to feel like an acceptable mother, which is sad, but I need you to support me in ensuring that that there are two play dates a weekend for the boys and to create the time and the space. I'm delegating grocery shopping and some of that's coming to you. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good that was a good first effort there. (laughs) Now let me let's just build on this a little a little we just went through a process that, that did something quite important that didn't come out very much in that little role-play moment. Uh-oh. No, you didn't do it badly at all. <laughs> um, you identified what is essential to you and why. Mm. And it wasn't just so that you were an acceptable mother. Right. It was much more than that. Right. But here's the lesson. This is, this is what you just did is, is you've illustrated what almost everybody does that I've ever worked with. It's a very normal thing. And that is to not get clear with people about your intent, mm-hmm. about what's essential and why. Right. We assume people know they do not know. We assume people know our highest intent and they simply do not. There's no way for them to know. Mm-hmm. So what I want you to do, if you don't mind, is just give me that again with the intent in place. This is what I want to do and this is what's essential to me and this is why. It is essential to me that we are more engaged on the weekend, which I think 
translates to two play dates, two, two big activities that will take a few hours each because it is my intent that the boys grow up and we've created a lot of amazing memories and they're healthy and they're engaged and they feel like we were paying attention. Yeah. Did that feel different to you? Yeah. Felt more emotional. I, I, I think that's so powerful what you just did. I, I can imagine a conversation, you know, Rob, nothing's more important to me than you and these children. This family is essential to me. Nothing matters more to me. It's, it's critical. And I just think that, a, that a, a, a decently small but real trade-off could make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. If I just could steal this many hours and I'll, I'll, I'll take it from the shopping let's come up with another solution for that let's build a better system for that mm-hmm. you can have people deliver food from costco for example this i know right it's true <laughs> and, and pretty effectively yeah uh, you you can divide the responsibilities in some way but now you're having the conversation with your accountability partner with the person that you're going to work this out with so we haven't now perfected this but we have gone through the three steps this is the pattern. The, the disciplined pursuit of essential things looks like that mm-hmm. again and again. I'm not the one identifying for people what's essential, what's non-essential. But my argument begins on the basis the most stuff is non-essential. Yeah. And a few things are really essential. What if you miscalculate? What's the downside? What's the downside? Yeah. But that's the inherently what essentialism is arguing at first you are saying what's really really important and what's really really trivial let's design a system to make that trade-off yeah and so there are some times that i have thought i've become quite philosophical about all of this well how do you identify the most important thing and how and it becomes it sort of becomes this very um this organism that's very hard to get your arms around but i found that if we do it in the way we just did it's actually quite clear And so if you were to do what we just did many, many times, there could come a point where you say, well, I've identified something now that's absolutely essential, and this other thing is important but not as essential. You know, you might move up this continuum, Mm -hmm. and instead of it being 0 to 10%, you might be dealing with the things that are 50 to 60% important. And then that's a little trickier because then you go, well, do I – which one is it? But I found that there's such low-hanging fruit – Mm-hmm. People actually don't have even, and, and I've done this now all over, people have almost no trouble at all with identifying something that's highly important they're underinvesting in and something highly unimportant that they're overinvesting in. Right. And if they start with those extremes, they can start building a system around it and they can start making progress to living a life that they feel represents their highest, most important activities. Yeah. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Greg McEwen in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. Anytime I meet someone new and mention that I live in L.A., the first thing out of their mouth is, ugh, the traffic. One of the many perks of driving a Mini Cooper is that it's go-kart-like handling, intuitive mini-connected entertainment system, and host of high-tech extras make navigating traffic almost enjoyable, no matter where you live. And when the road clears up, the real fun begins. The super agile handling means that it tackles turns, winding streets, and whatever else driving in the city or country can bring with grace. It's a lot like having a sports car for a fraction of the price. Take their newest model, for example. 
In addition to being their roomiest car to date, the Mini Countryman has available all four all-wheel drive, a slew of techie extras, and space to seat five passengers, not to mention a ton of cargo space for everything you need to bring with you. Plus, you can opt for the plug-in hybrid version, Mini's first foray into the partially electric space. To learn more about Mini and their diverse range of models, visit MiniUSA.com. On my last New York City trip, I squeezed in a walk up Madison Avenue past Barney's iconic window display. Of course, I made it to the shoe department, and I definitely had some pizza at Fred's. The department store always feels like it's part museum in the best way, and the buyers at Barney's curate an incredible selection of big-time investment pieces from both emerging and classic designers. I wasn't surprised when Barney's launched an equally interesting podcast around the same time that we started the Goop podcast. The Barney's podcast is now in its second season, and this go-around, it's hosted by Cindy Levy, the revered journalist and long-reigning, now-former, editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine. Levy is interviewing some of today's most brilliant creatives, and it's so fun to hear her back on the mic. She's talking to menswear mastermind Tom Brown, singer-turned-designer Kelly Rowland, and New York Times bestselling author and comedian Phoebe Robinson. The Barney's podcast celebrates fashion, style, culture, and above all, the dynamic personalities and human connections that make Barney's, as well as the fashion industry, so riveting. Levy goes deep into the lives and minds of her guests, spotlighting the untold stories that surround the clothes we wear. Don't miss the debut episode, where fashion icon Tom Brown talks about what it's like to dress Michelle Obama, why he values routine, and how to remain steadfast to your vision. You can listen to the Barney's podcast wherever you're getting this podcast from right now. Now, let's turn back to Elise. You talk about the three deeply entrenched assumptions we must conquer to live the way of the essentialist. I have to, it's all important, and I can do both. And the swap for that is, I choose to, only a few things really matter, and I can do anything but not everything, which is profound, Greg. I appreciate you saying that. The, 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 the connective tissue I want to make here is with the example we just went through, if you absorb that mindset, if you say, look, almost nothing is really that important, but a few things matter. If you believe I can choose to do things, but I can't do it all, you start to spontaneously do the kind of thing that we just walked through. Mm-hmm. You start to just... It's like you discover that waking up and going, oh, I, uh, there I was my whole life thinking that life was shoveling coal. Right. And my job was to get as much of it out of here and putting it over there. But then you discover that you're in a diamond mine, so all your behavior would shift if you suddenly had that mindset change. You'd say, okay, it's not about how much stuff I get out of here. It's how well I can discern the things that are really essential. And so that's why the mindset matters so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, people could even read essentialism, and at some level, if they were reading it in a, at a shallow level, they might mistake it for just an efficiency right. model or a productivity model. And it's not. It's not about doing more things. It's about doing more of the right things. So can you take us through, you give so many concrete examples. How do you coach people to say no? Well, the first thing is that I didn't write a book called Noism. <laughs> <laughs> the book is Essentialism, and that makes all the difference. Because 
if somebody gets the idea that what essentialism is is simply saying no to people, everyone all the time without really thinking about it, then I think they will just damage relationships. Right. As I think people fear they will when they think about the word no. That's why people don't do it. But if they frame it from the point of view of what is most essential, you can start with that with almost anyone. Uh, I was just talking to somebody, in fact, uh, at, a, at a company, this is within the last week or so, and uh, it was a, yes, this is a big event, a big conference, we've got hundreds of people in the room, and, and I said, how do you feel about this at some point? And she just yelled out. She's like, yes, I believe that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, everything stops. Who, who are you and why, what's going on? And she stood up and she said, I read Essentialism. And when I read it, I realized, my goodness, my whole life, I've been buried with non-essential stuff, thinking it's all equally important. And she said, so I went to work right after I read it. And I went to my boss, who, by the way, uh, I know from the way the story plays out, must have had a high trust relationship. You can't do this if the trust is low. But she goes in there and she says, look, these are the things on the list that are absolutely vital. These are the things I need to work on. And this other stuff, it's just rubbish. And I just should not be doing it anymore. And the response from the, the boss in this case was, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, not every boss will respond that way. I do understand that. But if the trust is high enough, and if you position it first with these are the things that matter the most, this is what we're going afterwards. And you're always going back to what's essential and mm -hmm. having that conversation first and then saying, if we can't do everything, which of course we can't, so if we can't do everything, which things are most important? Mm -hmm. That's the right conversation to have. Yeah. And that leads to the natural conversation about, well, which, which won't we do? So your no isn't always just with the word no. Often it's just to remember there's a negotiation. Right. Instead of defaulting to yes to everything all the time, no matter what. I thought, so there was this, this section, I'm going to list these off because I think that they're really, it was very helpful to me. So you talk about sunk cost bias, saying no, winnowing things down. So pretend you don't own it which I think is really interesting when you were talking about the closet and how much, like if you had to buy these things that you're prizing for no particular reason and you don't want to get give them away, right. if you were just like, pretend like you have to buy it again, how much would you actually spend? This is really key why that's a solution. All of us have a brain heuristic, which means a, a, a built-in, pre-programmed way of thinking about stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's called the endowment effect. And this endowment effect says you value something more because you own it. Mm -hmm. This is a perfectly positive heuristic. It's very helpful that we have this embedded in us. It's good for, that's why people treat their home better if they own it. It's why also, you know, no one in the history of the whole world has washed their own rental car. Right. But in the case that it's unhelpful is where you overvalue something to the extent that you hold on to it when really you should let it go. You wouldn't buy it again. And that's why that test is so helpful. Yeah. You've got to trick your brain past this heuristic and say, okay, forget, pretend you didn't own it. Now how much do you value it? Mm -hmm. You might say, I would, buy, I would buy it again. I would bring that back in. It is still worth something to me. Then great, keep it. But in many instances, you're, va you're, you're valuing it beyond what it's really worth. Right. And that's why you keep it. 
I love that one. Get over fear of waste, which I think makes a lot of sense. And you talk about how we're all conditioned as kids to not waste. And so there's this tendency of like, I can't give up on this because I've wasted time. I can't give up on this relationship. I've invested so much. So that one I think is really wise. Stop making casual commitments. Mm. I do That's that just all like, the time. This is so easy to do, isn't it? Yeah. One of the things that I found helpful was, was uh, I spoke, spoke with a, a woman once who said she would go to, uh, well, actually what she said, I'd go to church and, uh, and I'd have five new commitments by the time I left every, every time. And it would just overwhelm me. I wouldn't know what to say because good people say yes. This is the idea. And so she learned the phrase. She would say, oh, thanks for thinking of me. Let me check my calendar. I'll get back to you. Yeah. Sometimes she'd still say yes, but you get the pause. Yeah. And so you step away from it. So you aren't making casual commitments without really meaning to. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Hey, listen, shoot me, a, shoot me an email. Let me, you know, let me get back to you. Let me, let me check my calendar. Let me get back to you. Gives you a pause to decide if this really works. Yeah, I think that's really smart. Along those lines, pause before you speak. Um, get over the fear of missing out. Well, the fear of missing out is such a real phenomenon, isn't it? FOMO. FOMO. It is such a real issue. And what I want for people is to discover the joy of missing out. Um, or JOMO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally... This, I thought, was, it's near the end of the book, but it's so important. But you talk about buffering. Yes. And this idea that we all operate, and I'm really good about this. This is, I'm very essentialist in this way, mm. but I have many friends who don't. But this idea that we all run with, like, the best case scenario, if there's no traffic. Like, you take that, <laughs> it takes five, I've got there once in five minutes, therefore right. I can do it again in five minutes when the reality is it might take 15. And then we all run our lives chaotic, stressed, late. How do you create space? Uh, you know, there's a few ways to approach this. The, 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 the principle is that we can expect the unexpected. Yeah. So if you build your days repeatedly on the basis that nothing will go wrong, then you will be behind and therefore perpetually stressed. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, this is really doing a lot of damage. Yeah. So what can you do? Well, I remember speaking with one individual who repeatedly, his, his, his norm practice is to put two hours blank space on the calendar every day, broken into half-hour segments. No appointments can be put on his calendar by anybody else because he knows there will be unexpected things. And so as a result, mm-hmm. his day is far less stressful than a lot of people with far less responsibility than this leader has. This leader has a tremendous amount of responsibility, a lot of stress, has family too, has a lot going on. This is one very smart approach. I like that. So, so don't stuff the calendar full. Bill Gates had this moment with, uh, with Warren Buffett. As I, as I understand the story, his, uh, Bill Gates' mother invited Warren Buffett over to dinner. They're having this dinner party. They go around the table and they ask him questions and so on. And they, ask, they ask, why are you successful in one word? Bill Gates and Warren Buffett at this dinner give the same answer, focus. Mm. First of all, that's its own lesson. But as Bill Gates became friends with Warren Buffett, he was amazed to find that Warren Buffett has just almost nothing on his schedule. So he's taking it to an extreme, but literally one week he has, like, get his hair cut, was the only scheduled appointment in the entire week. Bill Gates at the time, running 
Microsoft is doing the exact opposite. Every single minute is scheduled, backed up. Every, and he thinks that's the only way one can do life mm -hmm. as a CEO of a major company. And suddenly he realizes, well, it's a different company to be sure, but this is a very highly driven individual and a highly driven company. He became the most successful investor in history. And he's doing a completely different strategy. And that's exactly what essentialism is supposed to offer, is it's saying there's an alternative strategy. Here we are defaulting to non-essentialism, defaulting to packing everything full. What if there's an alternative strategy that we haven't even considered seriously that could be a way out of this madness and a way to do the things that really matter and start pushing out the things that really don't matter? So true. And the buffering, I'm, I'm that, I'm doing it. I already do it, but How now How do you I'm do it? it? I try to, put, I sometimes put blocks on my calendar. I try to leave early and I always have a book. I'm not, I'm never worried about being bored because there are a million things to op occupy me. So I just try and leave space. You don't space. mind being there early. I don't mind being there early. I'm very yeah, some happy people to mind sit that. Some people are bar. like, my goodness, where are they? They're too many. No, I'm like, I'll get a drink at the bar. I'll hang out. I'll read my book. I'll walk around. I hate the, st the stress and anxiety. And that's how I was raised. I get to the airport two hours early. Do you? Even for simple domestic flights with TSA pre-check. I could do better at that. Yeah. I don't need the stress. Like, the anxiety, the... No, I know. It's true. Yeah. Why do you need the stress? No. It's okay to be at the... It's okay it's to be okay there. It's okay to get a coffee. So <laughs> that's how I roll. I don't... I, I, I'm, I try and build buffers. One thing I want to do is create a different office culture here at Goop because I run... And, you know, I was 15 minutes late. I hate that. It drives me crazy. It's rude. But because we run so back-to-back, -back, it happens all the time. Yeah, I, do, I don't mind when somebody's late. I'm, I'm with Thomas Friedman, who wrote a book recently about this called Thank You for Being Late. Oh. Because he's saying in this technology era, the only time he gets to think... Is in those minutes? Is in those minutes when somebody's late. So in that oh, sense... Well, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. But, but the point you raised there is obviously a bigger conversation. But how to introduce essentialism at a, a, into a corporate culture... Yeah. is then a whole new thing. But you cannot, simply cannot create a corporate culture around essentialism without individuals buying into it. Yeah. I mean, corporate culture is made up of people. And the more essentialists you have, the better chance you have because then you can have a better conversation about it. In fact, that's the number one mistake I see people make that want to bring essentialism into companies is that they often start it on their own. Mm. They walk in, they've read Essentialism, they go, I'm, gonna make, I'm making the change. And it's like they're speaking a different language to the people around them now. And that can be quite a jolt to the culture. I mean, frankly, what you have to do is you read the book, but then you get everyone else on your team to read it. You, mm -hmm. So you can talk. You know, I'm not saying what you'll change and what you won't change, but you can't even have the conversation if you don't have the language. If you can change the conversation, you have basically already changed the culture. Because mm -hmm. culture is just the big conversation. It is what we are talking about and what we're not talking about is just the definition of any culture inside of an organization. So that's what to do is get everybody talking about it. Essentialism Book Club, guys, coming up. Thank you for joining our conversation with Greg McEwen today. You can learn more about him at gregmcewen.com and at goop.com slash the podcast. Now I'm going to take a question from one of you. What do you do when you feel like everything is out of your control, asks Samantha. 
If there's one thing I have learned in life is that everything is always out of your control all the time. And as soon as you can let go of the illusion that sometimes things are in your control, then I think the more quickly you become comfortable with when things are out of control. Having said that, you know, we are human beings and it is our very much in our DNA to try to want to control our feelings, our external situations, our dynamics with people. And what I try to do is when I find myself caught up in that pattern is um, just apply a bigger context, which is that I believe we are here and we all get a very specific soul curriculum and we're here to learn whatever is specific to us on our journey. And when things feel out of control, I always try to remember, like Rilke said, life is in the right. And if you really believe that life is in the right, then you can accept more challenging things with grace. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this episode of the Goop Podcast. If you have a chance, please rate, review, and let us know what you think. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. For more info, check out goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.